Um, so tonight we will pick up from where we left off with um, verses 5 to verse 16. But to get us started, we would read verses 5 to verse 8 of Jude chapter 1. Okay, Golda, can you help us? Okay, 5 to 8. Mm -hmm. Old and new apostates. But I want to remind you, that you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did keep who did not keep their proper domain or left their own abode he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day as sodom and gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Okay, thank you. So what Jude is doing here in, the, in these verses is that he's unveiling to us um, the heart of apostasy or deception, or if you like the character of it, he's showing us um, and the wrong principles that are behind um, departures from the faith or perversions of the faith. And he begins by pointing back to, to, to history. Like, like we said earlier, it's important to see that there is, there is nothing that we're experiencing or that we're going to encounter that has not been prophesied about or, or that has not even been modeled, unfortunately, in a negative light in the past. So that when we look into um, history itself or we look into the Old Testament itself, we can see pictures of the principle that leads to departures from the faith, right? It says, I want to remind you, right, that the Lord, having saved the people, so now mark this word saved, because I had mentioned last week that when Jude said that we are preserved in Christ, our preservation in Christ is a present continuous reality. We said that the word, the Greek word translated, preserved there means to keep an eye on. It doesn't mean to prevent you from walking away or escaping if you wanted to. It means that and everything from the external is prevented from snatching you away. So he's saying that what happened to Israel when they were delivered out of Egypt was salvation. We don't have time to press this, but you see that all the tenets of salvation were fulfilled in the deliverance out of Egypt. First of all, there was the blood of the lamb, right? That was on the lintel of their doorposts, as it were. Um, and the spirit of God said, when I see when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over you, right? So it doesn't matter what your moral status is, if you like, was inside the house. What guaranteed your salvation was that you were inside the house, even if you were Egyptian and you were inside the house. The blood on your lintel guaranteed salvation. But in, in Exodus, we saw that there were two sides to that lamb, right? They were not only supposed to spill the blood on the lintel, God instructed them to eat the flesh, right? Um, showing us that there is, there is a legal side to salvation, which was taken care of by the blood. But there's also an organic side, right? Which is why he instructed them to eat the flesh of the lamb. There's a, an organic, living, practical side of salvation, which is why you read in the New Testament, it's as though salvation is a past tense thing, but it's also a present tense thing. And it's also a future tense thing. It's not a contradiction in any sense. And again, this has to do with the um, tripartite makeup of man, 
So God, it was God's intention that we'll be saved in our souls and we'll be saved in our souls through his life as we fellowship on his life and on his body. And that's what eating of the lamb symbolized. So these people experienced salvation out of the land of Egypt. But the Bible says that afterwards, the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. So I want you to note that. And then he now begins to talk about eternity past. The angels who were deceived by Satan. Now, notice something about the angels here that all they had to do was to keep their proper position. That was all they had to do. They didn't, they were not asked to fight Lucifer or to, you know, try to disarm him. All they had to do was to stand, as it were. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that when you have put on the armor of war, that's what you're supposed to do with the armor is to stand. So all they were supposed to do was to keep their, do their proper domain. So this also tells you about the, the idea of being kept as a present continuous reality. But Satan was able to convince them through deception to leave their own abode. And of course, the outcome of it is that they, have, they, were, they were bound up in everlasting chains onto darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then we see in verse 7, a city in the time of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, um, he says, in a similar manner, like the cities in a similar manner, gave themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh and are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. One of the things I wanted to see is that the judgment that befell these people is an eternal judgment. Right Again, I'm making this um, point explicit so that you would find a lot of theologians who try to make this verse say what it is not saying because they, they're trying to maintain a position that once saved is forever saved, right? Depending, like regardless of what happens after you're saved. But the context that Jude is using here is that the punishment that the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah suffered is eternal. So it means that the punishment that the people who were destroyed in the wilderness suffered was also eternal. There's no difference. And it means that you and I have been called to keep our position, as it were. And keep is not that we are the ones who essentially um, prevent ourselves from falling like Jude will talk about, but rather that we don't actively fa facilitate it right, in any manner. What I really wanted to point out, though, in these three examples that Jude has used is the principles that lead to departures from the faith. And I think Sammy hinted at this earlier. You can see that the first thing here is trivializing the justice system of God, right, or downplaying, if you like, the justice system of God. It's important if we're going to deal with God accurately, to realize that God has a justice system. The kingdom of God is based on the principle of righteousness. So if you ask in heaven, why has the throne of God survived for this long, from generation to generation? And why is it going to survive from ages to ages, right? God will tell you that it is founded on righteousness. And the day that throne violates that principle of righteousness, it will lose its basis and its balance and its center and his ground right so this is the reason why adam was was created in eden and everything was bright and beautiful and colorful and prosperous 
And suddenly God came into the garden and began to command him. You wonder like, why, why do you have to command us in this beautiful abode? Um, God was introducing him to the fact that the spirit realm is a judicial place. There is a justice system. And if you violate that justice system, there is a price to, to be paid. And what Satan did to Eve was to successfully make her despise or trivialize the justice system of God. He said to Eve, you will not surely die. Right? So if he could, he, he didn't want her to necessarily throw away the, the idea of dying uh, completely. He just wanted her to see that, it, that the death is not as serious as God was trying to make it look. And every time we hold a position that downplays the justice of God, either because of the grace of God or anything else, then we know that we are already working with the same principle um, that, that led to the downfall of these people. The other theme that you see running here is the violation of spiritual authority, right? Because even though Jude says here that the reason they were destroyed was that they did not believe, for example, right, in the wilderness, how did their lack of unbelief manifest itself most prominently in the wilderness, right? How did it manifest itself? It was through the principle of rebellion, rejecting the authority of Moses, rejecting the authority of God. The angels who did not keep their domain effectively rejected the authority of God. Now, this Bible study is going to focus more on that principle of spiritual authority because spiritual authority is a spiritual reality that is often misunderstood and not well captured in our um modern understanding of christianity but as you can see it's ex it is essential it is primarily the reason why satan himself fell right and it is also the principle behind why many false brethren would fall the violation of spiritual authority so that in practical terms if you if you're trying to run an evaluation test right about a certain minister, for example, whom you have inclinations to is false, for example. You just need to trace um, their lineage of submission. So there are two things you need to trace. One of the first is their lineage of submission. And I can assure you that in almost all cases, you're going to find that there is a violation of spiritual authority somewhere. Right? There is a belief in in the in the fact that there is no need for spiritual covering or spiritual submission to any kind of higher higher authority which is one of the strongest criticisms that the orthodox believers have of pentecostals they believe that we just wake up and say oh jesus called me to be an apostle and then we start a church we give it a name and we and we take off like a tornado like apostle rome always says right so that principle would always be there and the second principle that will be there is a degrading moral life, which we touched on a bit last week. But those are the two tests, right? How, how seriously does this person take the justice system of God? And how is that revealed in their secret character? And how much of Jesus's authority is on this person's life? How much of the authority of the church is on this person's life? Right? And this matter of authority is so important that the authority of God is, we're going to talk about authority subsequently, but one thing I want to point out here again is that 
the authority of God is channeled through the voice of God, right? Because if you take the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, their crime was that they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and they went after strange flesh, right? Which all of us know what it means in the 21st century. Um, and a lot of Christians today are debating this particular topic that how wrong, what is God's, pro like what is so wrong about sexual immorality or about same-sex relationships or about whatever, what is really so wrong with it? And sometimes we try to find some, you know, psychologically or philosophically acceptable explanations that you know you need to have one wife but you see if you if you follow all of those explanations down you find out that you cannot arrive at a satisfactory logical solution the thing that makes them right or wrong is that god commanded them and that's what gives authority to scripture that in scripture we have the utterance of god right the commands of god right and that's what's gives authority to the gospel. And that's why Paul says that even if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach to you another gospel, even if we, Paul himself, was to preach another gospel, he said, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, let him be eternally destroyed, right? Because the authority of God is exercised through the utterances of God, through the voice of God. And so um, refusing to accept spiritual authority in any form or trivializing the justice system of God are the two principles that form the character of, of perversion or apostasy or departures from the faith, okay? Um, I want to pause now and ask us what your thoughts are so far. Um, yeah, I would like to hear your contributions and if you see something, another principle ongoing here as well. Okay, if I may. Yeah. I discovered, you know, when you were reading this thing, it just occurred to me that if we, if it were to be in our contemporary time, and I'm imagining the apostle teaching this with a, a, a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> this part from verse five, it becomes a bullet point. You know, you know, he, he stated initially verse four about how people have come to condemnation. And then from verse five, he starts giving a bullet point. Bullet point one, bullet point two, verse six, bullet point three, bullet point. And it's amazing how all these things, they may seem, they, they have one similar um, theme surrounding them. There's one theme surrounding them, which is um, rebelling against God's standard or God's judgment, as you have said. Okay, but then it it draws the it draws our attention to certain portions of scripture that we we've been flying over, like these stories in the in the whole of the Bible arc theme. These stories have been quote-unquote, minor snippets. They are like post-credit scenes of the major stories. But it's amazing how he points them out as these are bullet points, um, thematic um, concepts of what guarantees eternal condemnation on someone. You know, number one, he talked about those people 
who did not trust in the Lord, who rebelled against his counsel. You know, they talk about the angels who their form of rebellion was not sticking to their original proper estates, their proper office, you know. And the second one, the third one, there's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and their perversions, you know. And then I think, okay, I, I think we may not have gotten to that, but verse five as well mentions an instance of that. So um, I think I just, I just, that's just what I want to point out. It's, it's amazing how the most minute stories, or like I would say, the post-credit scene of the overarching stories are where the core wisdom of, of rebellion is hidden, is written in. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sami. I think as we read further, we're going to see how, you know, people were living their normal everyday lives, and yet what they were doing, either in rebellion or in obedience, set eternal patterns, right? And just to point out how common this is, verse 8 says, likewise, also, so he's now summarizing what he has said in verse 5 to 7, that these dreamers defile the flesh so they are morally deficient we said this is one of the tests that anybody who's propagating a gospel must be submitted to and of course morally deficient is not a test you can carry out on facebook or instagram you need to actually know more about the person's life right um, they reject authority this is something that maybe you can know <laughs> on facebook and instagram you know by people who constantly criticize spiritual authority and i know that that's a very touchy topic you know but we'll come to it and they speak evil of dignitaries now dignitaries here some people have understood it to be spiritual entities because the realm of the spirit is a realm of dignitaries right like um like we said it's, it's, it's a it's a judicial realm there's justice in that realm and that's why you can, even though you are small, you're not too big, you can cast out devils. It's not because you are you have muscles. It's rather because it, it's a judicial activity. That's why it's possible. But it's not only a, a, a realm of law and order, it's also, it's also a realm of dignitaries, right? They are ranking personalities in the spiritual realm. But that's not what Jude is referring to. If you if we look at Exodus chapter, I think Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, you will see where Moses gave, gave the law not to speak evil of dignitaries. And dignitaries refers to those who are meant to carry out civil responsibilities. So this is talking about magistrates um, and people who are supposed to punish evil as it were in society. Um, and if you look at our society, you, you can see how all of this stuff has been violated, even by Christians. But the main point I want to ask us about is, it's very clear, right, that the root cause of, of apostasy or departures from the faith or perversions of the faith is a, either a lack of understanding of spiritual authority or an outright violation of it. Either the authority of God's word or his commandment or the authority that he has placed in magistrates and dignitaries and and, 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 and civil rulers, right? Or a plain rejection of the moral codes that God has set in place. And my question for us to, to chew over and brood over to discuss together is, what is it about spiritual authority? Okay, first of all, what is spiritual authority? 
right? I would like us to answer that question. What is spiritual authority? And then as a follow-up, what is it about spiritual authority that makes it fundamental, you know, that makes it such a dividing principle, right, between, between true and false as it regards the faith, right? So any takers for this? I know it might be tough, but it's good for us to break it down, right? What is spiritual authority? What have you heard about it? Um, what are your thoughts about it? Okay, if I if I may, um, from my perspective, um, and also in the light of what I've been able to understand from Scripture, uh, spiritual authority would re would refer to authority that is sanctioned, um, authenticated, or endued by the Lord, because all power okay sammy yeah you've, you've used the word authority again in your definition Ooh, right so pardon me uh, yes what is authority then because i believe that authority is one of the things that even in especially in contemporary society is not even understood at all you know mm. we understand democracy we understand government mm. um, um, especially in the west where there is a lot there are a lot of freedoms and rights you know yeah um what is that word authority Okay, authority would I could I could personally define authority to be um, to be legitimate power exercisable within a specific office or jurisdiction. Okay. Yes, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. And and the follow up question is why is it so important, right? Why is it so fundamental to how the earth runs you know to like why is the violation of spiritual authority met with eternal judgment like we've seen yeah i think uh, the primary reason there is the word order okay. because yeah order um and like i would say one other word i i would under under my underline there is um jurisdiction because every part of existence is compartmentalized or has sections even the human body has parts and every part has a function and has a way in which they interact and interplay with other parts okay so when one violates authority or jurisdiction it is give it is giving rise to lawlessness or chaos. Chaos. Okay. Yes. I, so, I think that that you've used the right words. Um, definitely, they are quite big. So <laughs> let's <laughs> let's let's attempt to put a framework to it. Right. Okay. So you you've made a contrast, a very important contrast between order and chaos, right? And if you remember Genesis chapter one verse one, you realize that. The way the earth began was by chaos, right? Yeah. And and then God made order out of chaos. Mm. Right. And this is one of the arguments you use against atheists, right? That you cannot make you cannot make um order out of chaos, right? Except if you are God, essentially. Mm. But but let's not touch on that. Um mm. 
so we 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 find that how did God make order out of chaos? He exercised his authority, the yeah. authority of his word. So it means that creation, the very life that you're living is a product of spiritual authority. If God did not exercise his authority, there will be no earth today as we have it, right? There will be no creation as we have it. It means that you can argue that the authority is the most important thing in the universe. Mm. It's the most important principle in the universe. Yeah. Right. It is the principle by which God's throne is established. It is the principle by which God operates that throne. You may have heard that God doesn't need to stand up to rule, you know. You know how when you watch football, you see a coach jumping up mm -hmm. and down and shaking if the ball goes near his team's his team's penalty area. Right. Yeah. God doesn't need to perform those theatrics to 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 keep the earth going. God rules by decrees, by authority. And that's why when you look at the laws of nature, for example, they have inherent in them authority, right? If yeah. you look at the law of gravity, it doesn't respect the beauty of your face. Right? It, it, it has the authority to pull you down if you go up, except mm -hmm. if you discover a law that supersedes it. So that the laws of God function by authority. The whole universe Function by functions by authority. Nothing is greater than spiritual authority. And like we've seen, the purpose of God for the earth cannot be accomplished except if God exercises authority. And you can yeah. argue that the purpose of God for the church cannot be accomplished except if God can exercise authority. The purpose of God for your life cannot be accomplished except if God exercises his authority. Which is why you might be called to be a prophet but you will never be a prophet until you bow to Jesus, first of all. Because it is only when God can exercise authority over your life that his purpose for your life can begin to manifest. Right? You realize that the reason Satan exists today is because he, he attempted to violate authority. Yeah. Right? He, he, he attempted by his will to violate the very principle by which they had functioned so that sin at his core definition is is the violation of spiritual authority, right? I mean, if you look at how John defines sin, let's just digress for a second. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, he says, whoever commits sin, right, yeah. also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And the old King James says it's a transgression of the law. So the reason spiritual authority is critical, it's at the center of the universe is that the purpose of God hangs on it. And every violation, right, of mm -hmm. spiritual authority is an agreement with the original sin of Satan. Right? And the reason I felt it was important for us to clarify what spiritual authority is and how important it is, is that um, it's important for us to also take stock of our own lives to be sure that by our actions or inactions, we are not violating the authority of God. You know, like we said earlier, God has the right to command you. You know, just like he came to the garden and began to command Adam and Eve. And if you're trying to objectively do an analysis and say, okay, this fruit you said we shouldn't eat, how is it bad? You know, <laughs> it is it's bad because God commanded it. 
Yeah. And it is good because God commanded it. That is the basis for good and evil. And of course, God commands things because he is good, right? And everything God commands is for our good, ultimately, if we will follow through, right? And I know that in our time, um, the idea of spiritual authority has been bastardized because Jesus left authority in the church. Yes. If you remember Matthew chapter 16, leading up to Matthew chapter 18, in the foundational statements of the church, Jesus said that Peter, upon this rock, upon the revelation of the Christ, I will build my church and my church will have authority over the gates of hell. It means that Jesus invested his authority. And that's why when you get to Matthew chapter 18, it says, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There is authority invested in the church. And the problematic thing, right, about spiritual authority is what happens when the bearer of spiritual authority is now deficient, right? <laughs> Does anybody else have that dilemma? Yes. What, ha what happens when the bearer of spiritual authority is deficient? Does that justify the violation of spiritual authority? Mm -hmm. That's all. Because it, it, it is going to be most likely the case that in more than one setting that we're going to be involved in, the person who bears spiritual authority, <laughs> we might even consider ourselves morally superior to them, right? Mm -hmm. Or to know better, or to make better decisions. Anyway, you can do the Bible study afterwards, but, but the scripture is littered with morally deficient people who had spiritual authority, which is why... Today in our time, God is not in a hurry to invest spiritual authority in a man's life because it's an investment, right? That God does not repent about. Do you remember Noah, for example? Yes. Yeah. After the flood, the authority to shape the direction of creation was, was handed to him. Yeah. And one of his sons, Ham, looked upon his nakedness. Now, in that scenario, Noah obviously was wrong, right? He got drunk and he was, he was in a helpless, embarrassing situation. Yeah but he still had authority on his life. So that if you, so that even though Ham insulted him and shamed him, when he woke up from that state, he began to speak with that authority. And I was looking recently at, at, at why Jonathan died. Because Jonathan had, had, you know, agreed with the purpose of God over the life of David, right? Yes. That. You know, you're going to be king, I'm going to be at the right hand. And he was not vying for the throne. He had, he had come into agreement with what God had deposited on the life of David. The problem with, for, for, for Jonathan was that he was in a complicated situation because his dad was still the king. And as terrible as Saul was, he, he was still the Lord's anointed. And that's something that David himself recognized. David's heart smote him when he even cut off a piece of cloth from his garment. Recognized that. This is the Lord's anointed, like his misdeeds eventually are between him and God. But me, in fact, his misdeeds are a kind of test for me, actually. Mm. You see my character. And there was once upon a time that, that Israel was chasing their enemies. And Saul made a rash and bad decision that none of his soldiers should, should eat anything in the forest until they have captured their enemies. And Jonathan was not out. And Saul placed a curse on whoever does that. Mm. and Jonathan was not aware of that curse 
And the Bible says that he plucked some honeybees and he ate. And one soldier said, did you not hear your father's curse? You know, it's not surprising that Jonathan died in battle, even though he had agreed to the purpose of God. I mean, we could go on and on and on with biblical examples um, to show that God honors the principle of spiritual authority, right? And it's important for us to recognize in our settings, where has God invested the authority, you know? And what, what is supposed to be my relationship to that spiritual authority? Yeah, I know that this is not, this is a, a deep topic. We haven't covered it as much as we could have, but any thoughts here before we move on? Okay, so spiritual authority, aside God authority, it also has people that he puts in authority, right? Yes. That's how the kingdom of God functions. You know, you read in scripture that God is a king of kings, right? It means that he, 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 like he governs by investing authority across board so that in the church, there's an authority structure. It is one of our biggest mistakes in Pentecostalism that somebody can wake up and start a ministry. And the only test is that is whether they are anointed or not, right? It's whether miracles are happening or not. And eventually down the line, stories begin to come out, you know, misdeeds begin to emerge and there's nobody to call such a minister to order and that's why um jude is silently telling us that you need to investigate the spiritual background of um whom you're submitting to right or whom you're paying attention to right is there is there a history of submission you know for example some people openly ridicule the concept of having a spiritual father right and it's not that they have a problem with it doctrinally per se they are trying to defend the fact that they don't submit to anyone. You know, it's, it's one thing if you say, look at this scripture, look at that scripture, look at that other scripture, and you reject a teaching, right? Or a principle based on that. But it's another thing when you have a deficiency and based on your deficiency, you begin to reject things in scripture, right? So what happens when somebody begins to run with a vision and submit to nobody within the body of Christ. What happens then? The authority structure okay. that Jesus set up has been broken at some point, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I have a question here. Mm -hmm. So, um, this spiritual authority now, you know how you have like spiritual fathers that you don't actually have like a con contact with? So mm -hmm. it's, but I, I, I see now that it's something that you should have at least certain ones that you can have like a personal, let's say personal relationship or personal direct access. So is, is that really, really necessary? You can just have someone you actually like look up to or it has to be like a constant, like back and forth at some point in time. Well, every believer is supposed to be under the authority of the church, right? That's where it begins. And unfortunately, in our social media age, we, we've, we've tried to redefine church as this online thing that, um, you know, you can just plug into. You don't have to make any physical commitments. You know, you can just send a WhatsApp text to your father in the Lord and, <laughs> and you just plug into it. Um, so that's not church. At least God didn't intend it to be so, right? 
So every believer is supposed to belong mm-hmm. to, we don't have time to press the design of the church, but every believer is supposed to belong to a local assembly. Yeah. And by local, we mean yeah. territorial, geographic local. Right? And your primary covering and authority is from that source. Right? There is, there is an authority that is in the gathering of believers. There's, there's an authority that is resident on that gathering. Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. And in that, that gathering is not a democracy. If it's a democracy, then you need to leave the gathering. Right? Because in that gathering, there's going to be someone that God has invested the stature of leadership on, right? The anointing for leadership to lead. The person may not be the most anointed. The person may not be the most eloquent. The person may not be on YouTube with 1 million followers. But you in that local gathering, the person has been invested with the stature of leadership. That's your first part of call for spiritual submission. Obviously, apart from your parents, if, if they are Christians, right? That's where it begins from. Now, occasionally, based on your, 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 your personal needs and your calling and the privileges of grace, obviously, God will expose you, right, to mentors and people that are not in close proximity to you. And let's, let's just say it how it is. I don't even have your time, right? Mm. Who you can say that you're submitting to eventually. But do not mistake your friendship <laughs> with a big, big man of God as as your primary spiritual covering yes your, your primary spiritual covering is your local assembly so that that's your incentive to leave any local assembly where god is not there you know it's not about maintaining family history or one thing one thing if god is not in that setup you you are vulnerable right because that's your primary source of spiritual covering right and of course if you are married, then like the covering principle begins from your home, right? Your husband and wife. If you are a child, your covering principle begins from your parents, right? If you are born again, God provides covering for everyone. And it is good to connect with people that are not in your geographic location, right? That don't share the same blood as you in that sense. But it's important to notice that there's no time in your life where you say, Kai, there's nobody here. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Could I also make uh, say something? Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think, okay, yeah, like you said, it's a very serious. I, I would I would appreciate if we could deal with this subsequently in a different context, I, I, a different, because uh, it's, it's a, um, it's an education that is lacking seriously among believers. Um, I also wanted to point out that even um, leaders in government, in society, are under that framework as well, because scripture admonishes us in different places to honor them, you know, to pray for them and not to be rebellious. Uh, one, one question I wanted to ask, uh, in still in light of what you said, I, I know it so it doesn't overflow, but uh, how would I frame this now? Okay, let me play the devil's advocate a little, okay, so that it will. <laughs> okay, okay. The Lord Jesus in scriptures, you know, in one of the most controversial 
teachings of his, he first of all began by saying, I'm not good. No one is good except the father. Okay. And he came again and said, call no one father because we have only one father in above all. He said, call no one teacher except, you understand, except the son of man. So there were some clear cut statements he made there. He said, the only person that is good is the father of all. The only father we have is the father above all. And I am your teacher. <laughs> and he also qualifies the Holy Spirit as teacher when he said, another like me. So my question now is, in this context of, um, I understood what you said though, about the framework of authority in the church, but maybe that would require a separate. But my question now is, when it comes to this spiritual father thing, because you know where I'm coming from, I, I'm sure you understand the area. Yeah, so from. yeah, you're asking how how do those statements match up with with um yeah, right? Our current and, and how can we judge that statement, you know, as well? You know, especially yeah. in our African context where it is easy to paparize or dirtyize <laughs> anybody. Yeah. So I imagine that the reason that's that's a problem is that you are reading the statement of Jesus as absolute, right? Yes. Call no one father. So obviously that's a problematic reading, right? Okay. Because if you were to follow through with that reading, then you wouldn't call your biological father, father, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you would also not call your teachers at school. In fact, you would trivialize them. Yeah. Actually, if you were to follow that. And you would also be, you also tell God, okay, so why did you, create an office in the body of Christ called a teacher, right? If mm -hmm. And why do you invest an anointing in a teacher mm. if, um, if you're not happy with it? It's important mm. to understand that most of Jesus' statements were fit into a specific context. Context, yeah. And when you generalize something that's specific, then it could be problematic, right? So mm. if Jesus is addressing some of the extremes of the Jews, some of their problematic... Like, in fact, he called it the commandments of men that they were teaching for doctrine, mm. right? If he was addressing those issues in that time, it's important to, to place those scriptures, you know, firmly in that context, first of all. So Jesus was not addressing the question of spiritual fatherhood, which is a, which like we saw with Paul, is a, it's a clear reality in the spirit, right? He says, he says, like my little children of whom I travail again in birth until Christ is formed in you. Mm. Right. And so my travail over you gives me a level of authority over you. And the authority is not so that I can exercise power over you. It's yes. because in the body of Christ, we need to vet you. We need to say that you had a history. Right. Yes. We need to say that there's someone who has your fire. <laughs> Like if you remember this this expression in Futo in those days. Yes. You know. Um, so Jesus' accountability. Statements, yeah. Okay. Jesus' statements are not addressing that topic and they shouldn't be read like that, right? Yes. Um, in that general term. And the interesting thing is that if you if that's the answer to Jesus' comment, then you're going to quickly realize that no other New Testament scripture even attempts to suggest that there is no spiritual fatherhood and when you are establishing doctrine you need to use 
clear scriptures, right? Plain scriptures. And the principle of two or three witnesses that are plainly speaking mm. to the same must be must be respected, right? Mm. Of course, with the principles of context and all of these things that we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's unfortunate that any position you want to hold the bible can help you justify it any position whatsoever if you want to marry 1000 wives right you you, you can read that out of the bible yeah, okay. for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay so we spiritual authority like like some of you suggested we'll try to touch on it this is something that god started dealing with me on recently um but yeah i want us to know that if you do not submit to spiritual authority, it's only a matter of time before you join this list of apostates. It's only a matter of time. You know, some people believe that because church is now online, they don't need physical church, you know? Yeah, like, why should I go on, on Sunday? I just plug YouTube. In fact, I plug Apostle Rome, plug Apostle Selman, plug um, who else is popular now? Plug all these people. That, like, And then I'm, I'm good, you know? That's a lascivious state of existence, an existence that lacks accountability, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not the design. We don't want the God will help us to talk about the church, um, the mystery that the church is. You realize that the reason why we have the benefits of being able to plug in online and tune into services for our strengthening and equipping, it's, it's part of the advantages that we have mm -hmm. because we live in a generation where there are so many disadvantages from going online. Um, but that's for another day. Okay, so go there, verse 9 to verse 11. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But this speak, but this speak evil of whatever they do not know, or whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for prophets, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so um, Jude is again highlighting the idea of spiritual authority, right? Using probably one of the most powerful entities in the entire universe, right? Because we cannot classify God in that category of classification. God is outside it. So if you talk about entities in the universe that are powerful, there's someone called an archangel. His name is Michael. An archangel, like someone has defined, is an angel that other angels call angel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that's, that's the best way to understand the idea of an archangel. Mm. However, this archangel got into contention with the devil. Obviously, the devil is, is, is a fallen angel, right? The devil, um, okay, let's not press into who, what he was, but he was quite high in the ranking. But he's fallen. So this is supposed to be a mismatch, right? But then we realize that it doesn't actually fight. It was a dispute eventually. So this points to the fact that this was a legal situation. The yeah. spiritual is, is legalistic. The reason why God comes to command you is because the spiritual is legalistic. Many commandments of God that do not make sense today are for your preservation. God can come and tell you, don't watch football. And you can read all the articles and find that there's nothing wrong with football. 
the only reason you will not watch it is because God commanded it. And it is in obedience that you are going to find out why later. You know, the spirit realm is legalistic. And when God wants to walk us through a protocol, through a process of deliverance, he comes with commandments. So you can see that this was a legal dispute. So the, so the body of Moses was on the earth. And the archangel Michael was sent to bury the body of Moses, essentially. Till today, the Israelites don't know where the body of Moses was, because if they had known it, they would have turned that gravesite, you know, just like what's happening today with where the mosque is in Jerusalem, they would have turned that gravesite into something, some, something else, essentially, another God, practically. And so Satan knew that, and so Satan wanted to be in charge of that religion that would have formed, right? Um, but God sent Michael, and Michael did not bring against him a reviling accusation, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. So this was a legal dispute. And you might ask, what gave Satan? So essentially what's happening here is that Satan had the jurisdiction, had the authority to hold the body of Moses. Yeah. And so that's why Michael, it was not a fight. It was a dispute. It was a legal dispute. And only the judge of the universe could settle that score. Right. Um, and so a lot of spiritual warfare is legal. Certain scores can be settled by only God. Certain scores can be settled by only restitution. Certain scores can be settled only by certain spiritual intelligences that God gives you. Right? The reason, obviously, you, you and I all should know why Satan had this authority, right? Yes. Adam gave it to him, right? So he, he, he went to court and said, but wait, Adam gave me the earth. I'm the prince of this world. So I, I have Moses' body and he was right, but Obviously, God invoked a higher intelligence that won the case for that day. So that even God himself does not violate spiritual authority. You know, as much as God loves you, right? He didn't forgive your sin without the sacrifice of his son. It was not the most convenient way. Obviously, there's, there's no, there was nothing pleasurable to God that his son suffered and died on the cross, except that he satisfied the claims of divine justice. So that even God, because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, he cannot by bypass that principle of spiritual authority, right? Okay. It says, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beast. In these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Um, what Jude is, is, is doing here is that he's drawing parallels, right? We have looked briefly at how um, departures from the faith emerge, their origin, but he's making it plain. We have seen the principle behind it, which is rejecting spiritual authority, right? But now he's using three examples to show us the origin. What, what brings somebody to the place where they eventually reject spiritual authority? That's, a, that's essentially what he's saying. And he's saying there's something called the way of Cain. So it means that Cain said Cain was living his life and the life he lived became a way. <laughs> what is the way of Cain? We don't have time. So I will just run through it, right? Like we hinted last week, um, or essentially what happened with Cain is that God said, bring the sacrifice. And from Everything we understand about that scripture, it was supposed to be a sacrifice of blood because after the fall of man, 
the only basis upon which man could, could deal with God was on the basis of substitution, right? And, and blood was needed for that transaction. But we know how it happened. The sacrifice of Cain was rejected and Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And God came to Cain and said, why is your countenance down? Right? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That's crushing, isn't it? Mm. It's not only that things are not going well for you. God is suggesting that you are part of the problem. Right? That if you, if you do certain things right, you, you'll, be, you'll be accepted. And then he warned him that sin is couching at the door. It, it has a desire to master you, but you need to overcome it. So mm. in that scenario, Abel represented the ideal, the thing that God accepts. And God was not going to accept Cain's compromise at any price. So what was Cain's response? He destroyed the ideal, right? Um, he destroyed the standard. He killed his brother. Because if you look at his interaction with God, what part of it involves Abel? Right? None of it. And this is what we said earlier, that this is how apostasy is born, that the standard of God is set before me and I cannot meet it. And instead of humbling myself, you know, when we read James chapter four, James says that um, submit yourselves to God, right? Humble yourselves, pray fast. He, he, was, he was increasing the measure of intensity that you need to add to your pleadings in case things are not changing. Because to him, giving up was not one of the options. Rather than doing that, one option is to completely destroy the standard itself, right? Um, and so that's the way of Cain that we knock down the standard of God um, instead of contending for the faith. We compromise the standard of God to fit our own weakness. And you see, this path of rebellion, because eventually many things happen with Cain, he, the Bible says that he departed from the presence of God. So he eventually chose the path of independence. And that's where our world has arrived at, where we don't want to hear from God, you know? Like, you know, the last time Cain met God, it was a terrible experience god cursed him and all of that um so he decided to build a civilization apart from god you know what i'm not going to talk to him when i wake up i'm not going to try to find out his opinion about what i'm about to do i'm going to build a civilization without god at the center and in the part of rebellion you find out that it's it's laced with hatred with envy with manipulation right because Everybody who loses their consecration will do their best to make sure that you, you come down with them. Mm. You know? So you'll find that people who destroy the standard of God will always be on your case in one way or the other to ensure that you go down with them. It's the principle of rebellion. It's laced with envy and hatred. And then Jude talks about the error, right? Of Balaam or prophet, which we saw last week as well. So Balaam went after prophet, equating it to godliness, which is a sin of covetousness. You know, he told us that the angels who lost their position, they were not content, right? With that position. They wanted more and then they lost what they had. And Jesus said, beware of covetousness because these things are foundational. These things are fundamental to how the initial sin happened. So beware of it. And Balaam equated godliness to gain. And that's what we hinted at when we talked about 
um, the menace of the prosperity gospel. And when we say the prosperity gospel, we're not referring to the aspect of the gospel that correctly provides for prosperity, but we are referring to that preaching of the gospel that makes my needs, my wants, my advancement, the center of his emphasis. It's a false gospel because it equates godliness to gain. And it's in those circles that you hear things like, you cannot argue with proof. I don't know if you've heard <laughs> this kind of wisdom before. You, you cannot argue with proof. So if somebody has proof in his life or he has results in his life or he has ministry, you know, if you criticize him, then it means that you're jealous of him, right? And that's why till today, one of the greatest false prophets that ever lived in Nigeria, a lot of people still were not able to discern that this prophet was false. Why? Because he had proof. Equating gain to godliness. You see, when contentment is lacking in our, in our life, the only result will be compromise, right? We will eventually submit to mammon. So if you have an ambition that I want to be the CEO of Twitter, you know, there's nothing wrong with that ambition, right? But Satan is going to prey on that ambition to bring, you to, the, to bring you to the place of compromise because we don't have time. But Satan has made his seat large on the earth. There's no institution that you will go to that you will not see his footprints. That's his duty, actually, walking to and through the earth. So that if you want to be president at all costs, you know, then... Satan will make sure that you that that you pay all, all costs because that ambition now consumes you. You know, that's what carries you along. Friends, I have no ambition, but I have ambition. <laughs> My ambitions are subject to the grace of God. You know, I, I'm, I cannot come to a place where my desire for something, right, supersedes my allegiance to Jesus. If getting that thing is going to come at the expense of my allegiance to Jesus, I will either forget it or I will fight till I get it standing with Jesus. That's why when, when, when Daniel got to Babylon, he had all the requirements to rise to the very top in Babylon. But he didn't aim for it because he knew that eventually it was going to be non-compatible with, with his belief system. And so he was like the operating system of Babylon, but he just didn't have the throne because the throne was completely corrupted, right? Um, I remember in James chapter five, we talked about kingdom prosperity. And I just wanted to refresh our memory with this um, because this is Balaam's error. And by, like by the time you, you go to Revelation, Jesus calls it the doctrine of Balaam. So Peter calls it the way of Balaam. So it was just a way, you know, he just practiced it. Jude calls it the error of Balaam. So it became more consistent. So it was an error identified. By the time we got to Revelation, Jesus calls it the doctrine of Balaam. Meaning that if something becomes a doctrine, it means generation after generation will have people that pioneer it, that carry it out. And it's a false understanding of kingdom prosperity. But in James chapter 5, when we looked at money and power, we said that the twin principles of true kingdom prosperity are the first is the principle of dependence depending on God. It doesn't matter how much is in your pocket. God wants you to depend on him. And that's why God will give you riches to test you and he also give you poverty to test you because both situations are not supposed to switch the primary principle of depending on God. Your money is not yours to spend the way you wish if you're in Christ. 
There might be no amens, but that's just how it is. The other principle after dependence is contentment. Paul says that I've learned how to abase. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to stay without sex as a single person. And if I come into marriage and God says, give me some, give me some nights without it. I've learned how to, how to be in that situation. And if I come into marriage and ah, there's so much sex, I know how to enjoy that situation. It, it, it's a fundamental principle of kingdom prosperity, right? That we depend on God and that we are content. And then finally, he talks about the rebellion of Korah. So this is where we see the, the crown jewel, if you like. Korah defied spiritual authority. And you, 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 can, you can look up the story, I think, in number 16. He defied spiritual authority and he perished as a result. You know, Korah came to Moses and said, all of God's people are holy. <laughs> so what is special about you? You know, that's what he said, essentially. Like, all of us are holy. God called all of us holy. So you, now that you are God, what's special about you? The Bible says Moses didn't answer him. He said, okay, let, let's not, it's not for me to solve this issue. Let's, let's allow God to answer us tomorrow morning. And it didn't end well for him because of a spirit of rebellion. Well, I believe strongly that the emphasis for tonight is that God wants to bring us to a place where we recognize his authority on our lives. There is nothing as beautiful as a life that is under the authority of Jesus. It is a life that is under that authority that reveals how weak Satan is. Even if Satan does something around your life, the thing will eventually work out for your good because you are under authority. In fact, the greatest demand in scripture is that we submit to the will of God. And when we are under the authority of God, then God has us as it were, right? God, God can engineer our circumstances freely. A believer who is under the authority of God can be guaranteed that nothing in their life is a coincidence because they are not living for gain, right? And I know that the standard of God can be, can be um, difficult sometimes for us, right? To attempt to keep to, to live up to. You see, but the solution is to commit ourselves to the one who is able. That's, that's the goal. When, when Jesus gave the manifestation, the, the manifesto of the Sermon on the Mount, he was not expecting that anybody would become those things by themselves. If not, if not, he didn't need to come, right? He was showcasing you a kingdom you cannot attain to so that you can hunger and test for him. That's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because only those who enter into the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit, the ones who accept that, I'm in need of you, Jesus. I'm in need of you. I'm in need of you. And my life is at your hands. Friends, I'm trusting God that, that, that a fresh stream of beauty will, will just flow out from our lives as we surrender to God, that each of us will be, will be like dead men living, as it were, completely laid down to the altar of God, asking God to move in us. Let God be the one to choose what city I go to. Let him choose who I marry, right? Let him choose what I say and what I don't say. Let his, let his influence begin to permeate every space of my life and begin to correct every corruption. And, and yeah, trusting God that his glory will break out in fresh ways as 
we come under his government. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.